All right. It's good to see everybody on this nice, crispy morning. Got a Bible stand and no Bible. Oh, well. We'll see how much we read from the screens. All right, well, we have embarked upon uh, a somewhat brief series on uh, what is discipleship. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Um, this week we'll be looking at terminology and significance of discipleship. Now, why are we on this topic? Again, last week we spent a little bit of time. There have been recent discussions among us. Discussions are always good when they challenge, make us think through things. So we're glad for that. <clears throat> but because there's been a lot of recent discussions, you know, everywhere, it's pretty much a sort of a public, public concern. So uh, if you just feel it, it felt like we'll just deal with it publicly. Um, <clears throat> clarify things, and uh, hopefully we'll all come to uh, unity, to uh, clarity, to confidence, so there's no elephants in the room on these matters. <clears throat> it's a matter that needs clarification, needs clarification throughout the Christian church. The Christian church has, at different times in its history, been confused about things. As history has moved on, they become less and less confused as Matters are brought up, matters are debated, and then matters are settled. A lot of things have been settled over the centuries. But there's still things. All you've got to do is ask someone about the second coming, and you'll get, <coughs> ask ten people, you get ten different answers. Ask someone about Calvinism, and people will freak out and bounce off the walls. So, <coughs> although that was, <laughs> that's in every confession in the, in the Protestant churches, but uh, they seem to think it's a big, big, giant issue. So just clarification is needed a lot of things, but discipleship is one of those things that needs clarification. And it has great significance. Probably the biggest reason for dealing with it, <coughs> it's significant, and uh, we need to know it. We need to be confronted with it. Uh, we need to understand it and appreciate it. So last week I said our approach would be a brief definition. We're going to look at the significance of it, get some working terminology, what are the core ingredients of discipleship, and what are some of the popular perspectives. Um, I've adjusted that a little, uh, moved a couple things around, but basically it's going to be pretty much the same definition, terminology, significance, requirements. What is, there's so many ingredients, it's like, okay, a list this big, let's try to, let's try to categorize a little bit better. So uh, in categorizing the list, some, um, just uh, the significance, the requirements, the ingredients, and the perspectives. So that will be our approach. Last week we dealt with a definition, a brief definition. What's a working definition? What's the ballpark that we're in? That's all it was for. Um, a disciple is a personal follower of Jesus Christ, someone who's an inherent, a follower. That's in the nature of the word itself. But as we look in the New Testament to, dis to discern and understand what a disciple is, we see very clearly that it's a personal follower of Jesus Christ. We looked at a number of places, but just some examples from last week. Matthew, when Jesus called Peter and Andrew, he came to them, said to them, follow me, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. They were disciples. This is a definition. Uh, in John, some people think that the Gospel of John is so different from the other Gospels. It is in a literary sense but con and some added content, but it follows the same themes. The next day, uh, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. So that's discipleship. It's following Jesus, personally following Jesus. 
And we follow his teachings. A disciple is a learner, someone who is following the teachings of another. <clears throat> we saw in the Gospel of Matthew that uh, in chapter 4, we have Jesus' ministry. There's this general statement that he went throughout all Galilee and he was ministering, did great signs and wonders and all these things. And then Matthew, in cha- beginning in chapter 5, starts to show you the details of what that meant, what was going on as he was going around doing all these miracles and doing all this teaching. What was he teaching? Well, the teaching of Jesus in detail starts in Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> he sat down and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. And that sort of wraps up in Matthew 26. So you have these, what, these 21 chapters of Jesus' ministry, and the primary focus that, the, that Matthew gives is he was teaching. It opens with him teaching, and in 26.1, really should have been 25.45, but when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples. So that's almost a literary technique that at least some scholars have discerned of that day, and it would be called an inclusio. Couldn't remember the the name last week. It popped into my mind this morning as I was thinking about it. That Matthew sort of puts bookends, big parentheses, and he says Jesus starts his teaching here in Matthew 5 and ends here in Matthew 26, 1, and the the material of his gospel then shifts to the cross. And so teaching is a big deal for disciples, discipleship, however we call it. The last thing Jesus says in Matthew 28 is we're supposed to go out and make disciples of all nations. We're to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we're to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So those are the things we looked at last week. Disciples, a personal follower of Jesus and his teachings, and it's especially as presented in the Gospels and Acts. And what we find when we look up at the terminology of disciple, all of them occur in, in the Gospels and in Acts, what we would call the narratives of the New Testament, stories of the New Testament history, uh, whereas the letters of Paul and others, uh, the word doesn't occur, term doesn't occur. So we see this word 268 times in the Gospels and in Acts, <clears throat> 264 times it's a noun, four times it's a verb. And again, that's important really to understand as we try to discern what in the world is this thing we're going to call discipleship. So here's the occurrence of disciple. It's all in the narratives. And so a disciple is a personal follower of Jesus and his teachings, especially as presented in the Gospel and Acts. So that's sort of a brief working definition. Disciple actively follows Jesus, has a personal attachment to Jesus, has a submissive learning from Jesus, and comprehensive obedience to the things that Jesus says. So that is disciple. Now this week we're going to deal with terminology. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord to be with us in this. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne. We thank you that we have the words of Jesus in a book. Uh, A lot of people try to undermine those books. They haven't succeeded yet in 2,000 years. Every intelligent person, so many smart people, geniuses have tried to undermine it, have not succeeded. Um, It is your solid word. It's a word we can rely on, a word we can always go to. Uh, Lord Jesus, following you is a personal thing. Following you is doing it by the Holy Spirit. And we know you personally, but your words uh, you've given to us in a book for all to see. They're open, they're objective, they're, <clears throat> they're external. We can analyze them, we can look at them, we can pray over them, we can meditate on them, we can embrace them, we can rejoice in them. Uh, we can use them for witness. Um, Lord, we can use them to counter those who would want to undermine the gospel itself and its message. Lord, these words are true words, faithful words. 
And we just pray as we look at some of them this morning and try to understand this word that's really not in the Bible, discipleship, try to understand why and how we would use this term. Lord, it would not be something boring or tedious. It would be something that we'd be on the edge of our seats over because as we also turn to look at the significance of discipleship, we see that everything is at stake in what it is. Everything, absolutely everything. Everything for our lives, everything for life, everything for joy, everything for hope, everything for purpose. Lord, so let us pay some good attention to what this word means, to consider, am I a disciple of Jesus? If I am, I have eternal life. If not, I do not have eternal life. Those are the stakes. And Lord, just pray that we would all consider them this morning with soberness, uh, with attention, and with uh, confidence and hope uh, in you, the God of all grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Terminology, terms, terms are important. If you don't think terms are important, then come with me to Grandma's Kitchen. We're in Grandma's Kitchen this morning for a little bit. And Grandma has tried and true canisters of basic cookie ingredients, because we're going to make some cookies. And she's got a canister of flour, and this is... uh, this might be old-timey grandma, but that's okay. Canister, a jar. I'll probably end up calling it a jar. makes more sense to me. But she's got this big jar of flour, and it's probably gold metal, unbleached white flour. Grammy's not progressive. <coughs> uh, uh, Grammy just does what Grammy used to do uh, uh, generations before, so, or the Grammys used to do. So she has a canister of flour. She also has a canister of sugar, and it's Dixie White Cane Sugar. Again, Grandma's not progressive. She's going to have none of that stuff, none of that progressive raw sugar business. We're going to have some nice Dixie white sugar because that's what makes the best cookies, you see. No, sir, no progressive sugar for Grandma. And then she's got a stuff jar. <clears throat> You're like, stuff jar? What are you talking about? Well, I'm trying to be realistic here. You know, every Grandma's got this jar where there's just stuff in it, right? And if you say what's in the jar, she can tell you what's in it. <clears throat> but you don't have a clue. So here's Grammy's stuff jar. It's labeled stuff, so we know that there's stuff in it. But we really don't know what it is or what it's for. It makes sense to Grammy, but it doesn't make sense to the rest of us. So we're going to replace it with a salt canister. Now, I know that's pretty big for salt. Morton's salt is usually going to have a small little box of its own. But we're going to stick it in a jar just for our purposes. So go, go, go with it, uh, if you will. Grammy's kitchen. We're making chocolate chip cookies. And then finally... If you're making cookies, you got to have a what? Cookie jar. There you go. So we got this cookie jar. And <clears throat> what's in that cookie jar? Well, somebody's always trying to find out, right? Open it up. Reach in. See what you get. Come up surprised, maybe, maybe not. There might be chocolate chip cookies in there. Or if it's my favorite, it'd be chocolate chips. Cookies without the chocolate chips, but extra pecans. So they'd almost be pecan cookies. Or if you really want to tempt me... <clears throat> Golden Oreos. I mean, Golden Oreos. Is my, my home, my place in heaven is going to be lined with whiteboards and stacked with Golden Oreos. No calorie, Golden Oreos. I've had a Golden Oreo in probably 15 years. You have no idea. If you don't think I have self-control, I have not had Golden Oreos. Anyway, so when you reach your hand in a grandma's cookie jar, sometimes you get surprised. Sometimes you always kind of know what's in there, but they're always sure to be cookies. Okay, that's what's in the cookie jar. There's no money in Grandma's cookie jar. I know. I've looked. Now, 
When you open this flower jar, this canister of flour, what do you expect to be in the flour jar? Yeah, good. All right. <clears throat> We're going to make some good cookies here. Whatever kind of flour it is, it's flour. Now, flour is basic stuff, isn't it? You can't take the flour out and cut it in half and have something else, right? Whatever you do with the flour, you cut the flour, you mess with the flour, just, it's still flour. It's still what's in there. So we say that this is something that's an ingredient that's basic, it's essential, it's irreducible. You cannot reduce the flour to something else. And so the label on the flour jar tells you that what is in here is flour and nothing else. Because you can't, you can't reduce it anymore. What's supposed to be in the sugar jar? All right, this is getting easy. All right, <clears throat> no matter what kind of sugar it is, brown, Dixie, raw, whatever, it's going to be sugar. And again, sugar is basic, it's essential, it's irreducible. You can't split it into other things. Sugar is just sugar. And the salt jar, what would you expect to be in there? Not that it's any fun, but salt. salt. Okay, you guys got it now. So in Grandma's kitchen, we got flour jars, we got sugar jars, we got salt jars. What are you hopes in the cookie jar? All right, now, can you take cookies and go, well, cookies are made of something that, you know, cookies just aren't like flour, because you can take cookies and sort of spread them apart into their ingredients, right? Like if you're me, you can pull the chocolate chips out. And then you can put some pecans back in. So <clears throat> you can take those Oreo cookies. And what do you do with an Oreo? Come on, everybody does it. Open it up and you lick the icing. Yeah, there you go. So cookies are not irreducible. Cookies can be broken down into their parts and pieces. All right? But they're still cookies. They still have an identity. They still are in a category. They may be made up of different ingredients, the flour, the sugar, a little bit of salt the butter, you know, the other things that go into it. But this cookie jar has cookies in it, all right? Now, if you were a certain granddaughter of a certain Grammy, and you said, Grammy, I want to learn how to make chocolate chip cookies. And so you were to start learning your first time ever baking, and you were to go, you know, um, I'm, I'm really paying attention to this recipe because it's, it's looking pretty complicated here. And, and here's a jar, and... Oh, yeah, there's some white stuff in it, and you put your scoop, you scoop your cup of it, and you go, cup of sugar, okay, done. Put it in the mixer bowl, put the other stuff in the mixer bowl. You start mixing up, you make the cookies, you bake them. Grandpa comes upstairs, he's all thrilled, he's going to get some chocolate chip cookies, he'll pick out the chips, that's okay. And he bites into the cookie, and, ah, you had dipped into the salt jar instead of the sugar jar. What would those cookies taste like? What would they look like? It would be awful, wouldn't it? Those would be the awfulest cookies ever because you put the wrong ingredients in because you weren't paying attention to the labels, you see. So when it comes to labels, particularly if you're going to make cookies, you've got to pay attention to those labels. Now, what if you had a certain brother who was mischievous at times and he thought, well, you know, I'm going to go and I'm just going to switch the labels on these jars. I'm going to pour the salt out of the salt jar and I'm going to pour the sugar into the salt jar and the salt back into the sugar jar just to be funny. <clears throat> so you come to make those cookies, and you're there, and you say, this time I'm paying attention. Yes, one cup of flour. Yes, one cup of sugar. Looks white, looks granular, there must be sugar. You pour it in there. What are you going to come up with again? A salty cookie, awful cookie, right? Because somebody switched the labels on the jars. All right, so... Let me ask you a question. Do labels matter when you're making cookies? Yes. All right. 
That's what we want to get to. We've got to pay attention to the labels. They have to accurately represent what's in the jar. If it says flour, it better be flour in there because I'm depending on it to be flour because I'm mixing things up with it. I'm taking all these component parts, flour, salt, sugar, and I'm putting them into some yummy cookies for Grandpa. And this time I'm going to leave the chips out. So paying attention to labels is essential to making cookies in Grandma's kitchen. All right, what about Christian truth? Christian truth. We try to come to understand what is the Bible talking about on this topic and that because, you know, thousands and thousands of words and paragraphs in this book about a lot of things. And they can be categorized at least somewhat into topics, what we would call doctrines. One of the jars we have in Christian truth is the justification jar. What do you think should be in the justification jar? There you go, right. Passages from the Bible about how you can be made right with God through Jesus, through his blood and his righteousness. That you can have this blood and righteousness to your account by faith. You can be... Accepted as righteous, regarded as righteous, treated as righteous, received as righteous by God in his holy sight through the blood of his son. You can be justified. Is the terminology justification in the Bible? Is that a word in the Bible? Yes, it is. It's a biblical word. It's biblical terminology. Our label is biblical. This is basic. You can't reduce justification down to another doctrine. This is where it lands. This is where you land. Justification, that's the landing zone. It's like flour. It's, that's it. It's just basic. This is irreducible. It's a core category of truth. And there's a doctrine called sanctification, a little bit harder to understand perhaps than justification, or a little bit harder, easier to confuse, therefore harder to understand. Doctrine of sanctification. sanctification. What should be in the sanctification jar? Okay, there should be Bible passages about sanctification, some good explanations that carefully puts those together and presents them in very clear, clear statements that have been thought through and balanced, that have looked through 2,000 years of church history and see where you can go wrong on this doctrine and the statements carefully worded to, to prevent you from going in those directions, but to clarify for every Christian what is true about being made holy before God. How does that happen? I've been justified before God in a once-for-all atonement of Christ, but I get sanctified every day in that everyday work of the Holy Spirit. That's, an e- that's a, a world where Satan loves to play. Sanctification is in the Bible. It's a biblical terminology. Holiness. It's a basic doctrine. It's core to the Christian life. It's a core category. It's an irreducible category. So what should be in the sanctification jar? Sanctification. Okay. Well, we also have a Trinity jar. All right. What should be in the Trinity jar? Okay. But wait a minute. The Trinity is kind of like a cookie. The Trinity can be reduced to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because the doctrine of the Trinity is made up of those parts. But the Trinity itself is sort of an individual doctrine because it's not only talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's addressing their relationship together. One God and three persons, the definition of that. 
So it's a composed doctrine, but it's made up of biblical components. It's also something that's well-defined. You can, <clears throat> that there's a consensus in church history as to what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Now, it may not be agreed to by everyone, but there is in history a definition which everybody must either agree with or disagree with. So there is this biblical doctrine of the Trinity. We put into that jar everything about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and their relationship together. We define it well. We define it clearly. There's been a consensus in the church for 1,700 years on this. The doctrine of the Trinity is that. But I'm going to make a statement here. It's going to be perhaps challenging for some. The doctrine of the Trinity is falsifiable. And it's a good thing it's falsifiable. What do we mean by that? If you're a scientist, you know it. If you're not, you're thinking Steve's gone crazy. Yeah. The doctrine of the Trinity can be proven either to be right or to be wrong. It's a statement that's not just a blob that kind of morphs into whatever you want it to be. The doctrine of the Trinity is a clear statement, well-defined received throughout most of church history, recognized, acknowledged. And you go to someone and you can say, do you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? And if they're aware of anything at all, they'll say either yes or no. It's something you have to either agree with or disagree with. You don't get to morph it into what you want. Now, some try, but because it's such a well-defined doctrine and so ingrained in the history of the church, and it's, it's taught, you know, as we go this day, we're, we're, it's being taught in Sunday school again, and I love it. Awesome, awesome history of it. But this doctrine of the Trinity has definition. You go to look at it, and you have to say it's either right or wrong, but you don't get to change it. You try to change it, people will be up in arms. You can disagree with it, but don't change it. All right? Does that make sense? A little bit different than sanctification, justification, whose wording, whose label is rooted right directly in, in, in Scripture. This is a doctrine that emerges from Scripture, but it has a handy label so we can carry it around easily. We don't have to carry three jars around and always sit them down. Doctrine of the Trinity, it's one bag. So it's a well-defined doctrine, doctrinal label with a consensus. All right. Now, what happens if I mix justification with sanctification? Mix up the content in the jars. Am I going to have clarity or am I going to have confusion? Confusion. You mix the flour and the sugar or the sugar and the salt, you're in trouble. You mix justification and sanctification, you're going to have, you'll make it to heaven, but it'll be a hard road, I can promise you. So determining and, and in your own mind and heart sorting out the difference between how am I justified versus how am I sanctified, that's really key to a peaceful Christian life. A lot of Christians go a long time trying to figure that out. And it's when you come to clarity on those two things for your own life that things start to settle down. What happens if we switch the labels on these jars? Call justification sanctification or sanctification justification. What are we doing? Are we helping people get clear? Or are we confusing things? Yeah, so there you go. So you get my drift. The point is, 
is that in Christianity, labels matter. Words matter, just like when you're making cookies. We have to be careful with how we label things. We have to pay attention to how we label things. We have to accurately represent what's in the jar with an accurate label. This is essential to clarity, stability, and unity. So what happens when we start confusing things? This is my little advertisement about Sunday school. We had a discussion about this. We're going to come back to this discussion. But it's important to understand that when we're dealing with parenting, parenting is not shepherding and shepherding is not parenting. These are two different terms. These are two different jars. You don't mix them up. Discipleship is not shepherding. Discipleship is not parenting. Parenting is not discipleship. Parenting is parenting. Shepherding is shepherding. And whatever we determine discipleship to be, it's discipleship. These are different jars, my brothers and sisters. And you have to spend a long time, just like you have to spend, you know, some amount of time, if not a long time, keeping justification and sanctification in their own jars so that you don't wake up in the morning and say, gosh, I, you know, I, was, I yelled at my wife yesterday, I was mean to the kids, I wonder if I'm saved. Well, you've mixed up justification and sanctification. So we don't mix things up. But what is Discipleship. We have this label, and like the doctrine Trinity, like that label, it's a, it's a handy label. I like the label. But what's actually in the discipleship jar? That's what we're starting to look at, but if you were to take a test today, and say, you've got to pass your discipleship test so you can get your discipleship driver's license. Would you co- go away with your license today? Could you write it down? Could you give a good definition? Could you give even, you know, something... Close to comprehensive. What does discipleship mean? You see, discipleship is almost akin a little bit in Christianity to grandma's stuff jar. It's akin in different ways, mainly because it's just undefined in the Christian world. Unlike Trinity, it doesn't have a consensus. It doesn't have... Confessions stating it. Doesn't have the council of discipleship of, you know, 652. It just doesn't have those things behind it. So this term discipleship, not disciple, but discipleship, which is not a biblical term. This term discipleship is somewhat like the fog. When you're walking through a thick fog, you know it's there, don't you? You feel its coolness, maybe little droplets but try to grab it. I'm going to get me some fog. It's there, but you can't get a hold of it, can you? Well, that's what this term discipleship pretty much is in the Christian church today. It's a term that is used everywhere, seldom defined or defined well. There's certainly no consensus about it, and it's lacking a lot in clarity. So, a disciple is a personal follower of Jesus and his teachings, especially as presented in the Gospels and Acts. We derive that from its usage in the New Testament. We'll be confirming this as we go forward. You'll see again and again and again a confirmation of this definition of a disciple. But what is discipleship? Handy term, but what does it mean? 
And here are challenges. It's not in the Bible. It's not a natural derivative either. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, <clears throat> a disciple is a follower of Jesus, right? Follow me. They followed him. These are terms that are used in the Bible. These are biblical terms. So I say we should have a doctrine of followership. Does that roll off the tongue? Kind of feels like it doesn't, right? Or a disciple's a learner. Everywhere they went, Jesus was teaching. We are told that the mission of the church, the only mission we have, is to proclaim the gospel, making converts to Jesus, to follow him, not follow men, not follow us, not follow this, follow Jesus himself, to baptize them, and to teach them. So if a disciple is a learner, why don't we just have the doctrine of learnership? Again, it just doesn't roll off the tongue, does it? It feels kind of like a coat that's too big or too small. So it's not a natural derivative. That's one of the things about it. It's quasi-biblical. The New Testament, after the Gospels and Acts, makes use of other terminology to describe what following Jesus means. It doesn't use the term disciple. So we grab it, and we want it to be the grab bag of Christianity, and I think it's okay if we use it as that, as long as we understand that's how we're using it. The doctrine of the Trinity, you know, is like a 12-pound bowling ball. You can carry it around. There's a 12-pound bowling ball in that bag of Trinity. The bag of discipleship, you're pulling almost the whole New Testament with you. It's heavy. Because it's got all of Christianity in it. And that's the challenge. Discipleship, in my opinion, properly used, is just a substitute terminology for living like a Christian. And that's why, again, it says in Acts, the disciples at Antioch were first called Christians. Christianity, discipleship. The world gave us that terminology. And we've been using it ever since. <clears throat> Discipleship as a term must be externally defined. It's not like justification that kind of defines itself. Go to the Bible, poof, there it is. Verse after verse, justification, justify, justified, it's all there. Sanctification, again, it's, it's a word in the Bible. It, <clears throat> it's defined directly. It's, it's a word taken from the Bible to represent the biblical doctrine. You know, be holy, sanctified, saints, when the things were called. Trinity, we have to sort of look into history and go, well, yeah, there's a big debate and some people challenged whether Jesus was God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we had this big debate in history. It was an essential debate, a necessary debate, a powerful debate, a fundamental debate, a debate worth debating, a fight worth fighting. And so it got defined within the anvil and crucible of history. But not so discipleship. And if we're going to use a term, it needs to have definition and it needs to have specificity. It can't be grandma's stuff jar. So we need to define it. Again, it must gain consensus. Any definition that we take on ourselves has to get credible consensus within a large body. Anybody here believe that we're going to get consensus on the doctrine of discipleship in the church today with, you know, seven, eight billion people in the world and 
whole histories behind this doctrine? I don't think so. But at least we're going to try it here. We need a consensus here. We need to have something that we together have rec- has recognized content that we're agreed upon, that we know that this is what it means, and when we use the term, everybody knows what we mean by it. And it's a definition that you can say, I believe it or I don't believe it. It's, it can be proved, and therefore it's falsifiable or provable. And whatever the term, however we use the term, it has to refer back to Scripture. So who would have thought this term that you hear in a lot of places, we use, not as, perhaps as much as others, a term that's totally handy, I really like the term, but who would have thought that the term had such challenges to it? And so we want to sort those challenges out. So here's my first stab, my tentative stab at a definition for discipleship. Discipleship is personally following Jesus Christ as Messiah, Savior, and risen Lord according to his word in the dynamic of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what I think discipleship is. And as we go through the Gospels, you're going to find that these are the core items of discipleship. You say, well, Steve, that's just Christianity. I'm like, "Uh, yeah, that's what I told you. (laughs) A disciple is a Christian, a Christian is a disciple. Now, some will say, hey, we're going to have a discipleship class. I'm like, great, you better be having discipleship classes. As a matter of fact, every Sunday school better be a discipleship class, every last stinking one of them. Every preaching needs to be discipleship. If it's not discipleship, it's not preaching. I don't know what it is, but it's not preaching. Because discipleship is Christianity, and Christianity is discipleship. And everything about preaching from the Bible, as we filter it through the New Testament, is about following Jesus according to his word. Everything is. From repentance to the new heavens and the new earth, everything is about discipleship. So what about its significance? That's the term. It's a great term, it's a big term, but what about its significance? Matthew eleven, twenty-five through 27. Now, previous to this passage, Jesus had just sort of upbraided or talked about and just just was sort of almost frustrated with some cities and some villages where he had done many mighty works, did a lot of things there, spent time, invested, and nobody believed. Nobody responded in faith. People were raised from the dead. People were healed of all kinds of sicknesses and diseases, some of which are readily cured today with modern medicine, some of which are not. But in that day, they had no medicine. In spite of many miracles and much unbelief in the face of it, Jesus wasn't discouraged. At that time, when he had brought to the fore, brought to everybody's attention, cities that had not believed, whole groups of people, 
Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And if some of you are trying to follow my little notes on there, I got some little notes on there, uh, don't bother because those are not the notes that go with it. <clears throat> I had some copy and pasting and <laughs> forgot the notes were from somewhere else. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus has gone out preaching. Some of you are going to be doing that today. At one o'clock, you're going to get together, you're going to pray, and you're going to go, and you're going to present the gospel to some folks. And some aren't going to believe. Most, perhaps all. Nobody will believe. So when you come back from that, it'll be a nice day out. Every day that you've done it hasn't been a nice day. But you're going to spend time, and you're going to spend energy, and and you're going to look at people, and some will argue against God. Some will say, I'm a Christian, but you're just, you're just not hearing Christianity from him. You're, you're not hearing the Holy Spirit. You're not hearing following Jesus. You're not hearing attachment to the Lord Jesus Christ in their voice, in their language, in their descriptions. And you try to talk to him about that. And everything in between, from atheist to hypocrite, you will encounter today as you have in days past. And they're not going to believe. And no matter how long much time you spend with them, they don't believe. They, they still have the reasonings for staying in that same unsaved space. What's your response supposed to be? Are you going to get discouraged? I have. I do. I will. That's always there. Are you going to be perhaps frustrated at times? Yes, Jesus was. Are you going to lose heart? I hope not. In the face of all this unbelief, all the investment and the resulting unbelief, Jesus praises God. I praise you, Father. Not dear Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Where's Jesus going with this? When Jesus himself addresses his father, sometimes he says, Holy Father. He never says, Dear Father. He just doesn't. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I praise you, Father, the one who holds the entire universe in the palm of your hand. And every human life is in your grip. You are the one who, Job says... Who can open when God has shut and who can shut when God has opened? Whether it's done to a man or to a nation. I praise you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth and the God of the spirits of all men. You are the sovereign Lord, the sovereign God. And though there may be personal frustration for a moment the umbrella is the sovereignty of God I thank you Father and this will some, seem strange to some because actually we're going to find out real soon that several passages several verses later this is one of the most used texts in the Bible for evangelism Come unto me, all ye that are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Isn't that like 
one of the most used texts. Texts. And yet, what's the context of the text? Father, Lord of heaven and earth, the sovereign God of heaven and earth, the one who holds the hearts and lives of all men and women and boys and girls in his hand, you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, the intelligent, the complacent, the self-indulgent, the smug, the one who has it all together from the worldly wise that have it all figured out. You have hidden these things from the wise and worldly intelligent, and you've revealed it unto infants. Who would ever think that in a passage on evangelism you would have one of the clear statements of the sovereignty of God and salvation ever. Who would think that? And who would think that it's a discipleship passage? This is where discipleship begins, and this is its foundation. It doesn't begin with personal repentance. It begins in the sovereignty of God. God hides things. Now, how does he do it? Well, sometimes all you've got to do is nothing. See, God's in charge of the world. So if the world's going to go his way, he always has to be engaged and involved. That was one of the arguments of Martin Luther in his response in his day to those who denied the sovereignty of God and salvation, his book, The Bondage of the Will. And he basically said, you guys, what you're trying to say is that everything happens according to men's decisions. He said, what you're really saying is God's not in charge of his universe. That somehow when it comes to the salvation of human beings, God has to get off his throne and bite his fingernails and hope for the best. And that's just not true. God is sovereign when it comes to saving people. And all God has to do to hide things from people is just to not reveal himself and let them go on in their own sin and their own darkness and their own self-will and their own self-complacency and their own self-sufficiency. That's all he's got to do. I think some of us, you know, we've been probably puzzled when we read the Old Testament about Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the longest reigning kings and one of the most wicked. And there's places in there where it says there were homosexuals in the temple. Okay, so you're dealing with a social order in which homosexuality has been elevated. Sexual distortion and perversion elevated in the culture, in the face of truth, in the face of God himself. And I used to read that and i go, man, how can that be? Do you wonder anymore how it can be? Do you see how it happened in Manasseh's day? Because it's happening in our day. 
And all God has to do for that to happen is just to step back and let human sin take its natural course. God is not taking here in this passage, he's not saying, oh, you want to be a Christian? Sorry, I'm hiding it from you. What this passage is about, God says, hey, you're on your way to hell. You're living under yourself and your own sin. Well, I'm going to fix your wagon. And I'm going to intervene in your life. And I'm going to give you a mirror, a spiritual mirror, and you're going to see who you really are. And you're going to see who I really am because I'm going to reveal myself to you. The first thing you have in common with God is when he shines light into your soul and reveals himself. Then you see everything as it is. Then you see clearly. But God does not do that for everybody. If you're here this morning and you're saying, well, man, if God has hidden himself from me, I'm cooked, I'm finished. You are. You're right. You're exactly right. You're reading this passage for what it says. If God just leaves you into your own sin, that is where you will end up. You will end up in the ultimate curse of sin and outer darkness forever. But if you're going to call on God, if God's starting to talk to you, that might be one of the first things you'll start to figure out. Without God, I'm finished. I'm done for. That's how God saved me. I tried a whole pile of religions. None of them worked. None of them satisfied me, and I knew I was, I was doomed. I just wasn't like, oh, well, that didn't work. I was like, I'm finished. I'm cooked. My life is over. I have nothing left. My friend hung him in itself in a mental hospital, and I'm next. Because I got nothing, and I mean nothing, to live for. Nothing to breathe for. I didn't know at the time. I just didn't know God. And for me, that was God shining in my soul, first of all, showing me my emptiness and my darkness. I didn't feel the guilt of sin so much. I was so numb and hopeless, I was almost even beyond the sense of guilt. I was just trying to find a reason to believe, to be alive, to exist. God hides himself and when he does and you see yourself as without hope and without God in the world, things get real serious, real quick, real sober, real quick. And these people that had seen the Son of God, who had seen the miracles, didn't believe. They hardened their hearts, tipped their hat, and walked on. Someone will say, well, God's not like that. Well, yeah? Then how come Jesus said, yes, Father, because this was well-pleasing in your sight? To bypass the self-sufficient and to go to those people who can't keep their own souls alive. Infants, babes, 
children in spirit. Who know that without God they have nothing and are nothing and can never be anything. That they need to know the God who made them. And they'll do anything for that. Well-pleasing in your sight. The sovereignty of God is well-pleasing in the sight of God. If you've had debates about it in your own mind or your own heart, and read this passage. This is about evangelism here. And about the sovereignty of God engaged in this evangelism. And Jesus goes on and he states something that, again, you'll understand why I put some of my things in that definition of discipleship. Jesus, in the face of the unbelief, says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. God has given me to run the show. Jesus Christ is beloved of the Father and God has given him everything. He has all authority in heaven and earth after the cross. All things have been handed over to him by the Father. If you want to get to the Father, you have to go to Jesus. No Mohammeds here. No New Age Spiritism here. No Hinduism here. No Greek philosophy here. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. So discipleship is in this framework of the sovereignty of God and it's in this framework of a risen Christ, a risen Messiah, who is currently, not futurely, currently ruling and reigning over the whole universe right now and has been doing so for 2,000 years. Read Ephesians chapter 1. He was raised far above all principality and power and every name that's named not only in this age but in that which is to come. And then God has placed all things under his feet. Sort of a mix between Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. Discipleship happens in this recognition of the lordship, the risen lordship, the exalted kingship of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. Some decades ago, there was a debate called the lordship controversy. What an awful, desperate debate that someone should say, you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Jesus is about to call everybody to him, and he says, you've got to do it in this knowledge and in this recognition that I am Lord and Savior. I'm beloved of the Father. I'm the son of the Father's love. I always do the things that please him. And I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. And he says, no one knows the Son except the Father. You can't know Jesus Christ unless the Father reveals him to you, and you can't know the Father unless Jesus reveals him to you. Only God can make himself known.
Human intellect, human endeavor, human research cannot come to a knowledge of God. It must be revealed. Every one of us is at the mercy of God to make himself known to us. And right here, we, have, we feel like we're almost in the Gospel of John now. The Father knowing the Son, the Son knowing the Father. This is the context of discipleship. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The sovereignty of God. You can't know God unless God says, I'm going to make myself known to you. It takes humility to become a Christian. It takes humility that goes to the very bottom of who you are. A final recognition that you can't live unto yourself or by yourself or from yourself or for yourself. It doesn't work. Then only God can make himself known to me. You say, well, Steve, man, this is, this is just hard to, to deal with. You mean I've got to come to God and ask him to make himself known to me? Yes, you do. When you start coming to God and saying and beating your breast like the, the publican who was sitting in the back of the church, there was the Pharisee at the front thinking he was all great and wonderful, that God loved him. I thank you, Father, that, or I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, not like this publican in the back. And the publican in the back is just feeling like he's just totally lost. He has no hope and just beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, to sinner. Please be merciful because if you're not, I don't have any hope. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter confessed, you're the Christ. Knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is. And what does Jesus say? You need to be clear about this, Peter. You need to understand this, Peter. You have recognized who I am. You see who I am. You have a spiritual insight into who I am. This did not come from you. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it. It wasn't even because you saw miracles. It came from my Father in heaven. No one knows the Son but the Father. Discipleship, the bottom line of discipleship, the ultimate foundation of discipleship is the eternal love of God and sovereign grace bringing you to know him. The knowledge of God is the beginning of discipleship. How can you follow Jesus if you don't know who he is? How can you believe in Jesus if you don't know who he is? How can you obey Jesus if he's not Lord? He's got a lot of things to say. They're going to be tough pills. He better be the eternal son of God. He better be Lord and Savior. And upon this, upon this recognition of the sovereignty of God and the grace of God in salvation... He then says, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, all you, all you infants, all you babes, all you that don't have any sufficiency in yourself, all you that can't keep your own souls alive, all you that can't find a reason to exist or to have meaning or purpose, all you who know you are guilty and dark, come to me, discipleship. Follow me. Discipleship. 
When you're weary and you're heavy laden and you're burdened with the wretchedness of your own existence, your own being, your own sin, come to me and I will take your burden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn. Here you go. Come to me and learn. Discipleship. A follower and a learner. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Gosh. I don't know about you, but I get into my fits of pride until all of a sudden I'm like, man, this is really weary being proud. It's hard to keep up with. It's hard to maintain. It's wretched. It's empty. It's lonely. God who made the universe is humble in heart. And I've said it before, but I still never can forget I was reading a little commentary on Philippians and I even wrote it in my Bible. Seldom do I write in my Bible. Maybe ten places have I written, but I wrote this one. Just talking about Philippians and about having humility as a Christian and this old Puritan said, how can man be proud after God has been humble? He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. Humbled himself even to the death of the cross. I am meek and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Is that what some of you are looking for today? Rest for your soul. Brothers and sisters, have some of, you, some of you wandered off a bit into the weeds? No rest in those weeds are. There's full of mosquitoes, full of snails. Return to Jesus. Rest for your soul. For my yoke, he says, is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy. He takes the burden of sin, of guilt. He takes it away. In his place, he puts his demands on discipleship, which we will be looking at in the next week or two. Remember what John said? First John. We're supposed to keep God's commandments, and his commandments aren't hard. I mean, they're hard if you're a sinner and love sin. Sure, they're, they're impossible. But if you've been freed from the power of sin, sure, you've got to struggle with remaining sin. That's Romans 7. But still, you don't have that burden on your back. Yoke is easy and burden is light. This is the significance of discipleship. Come unto me, learn from me. This is discipleship. This is where it begins. This is its heart and soul in a sense. Come to Jesus. Personal attachment to him. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne and what a statement. That for every one of us, our, our life, our, 
our being comes from you, is sustained by you, and our ultimate eternal life is determined by you. Lord, we just pray this morning that you would show grace to us. Even as Christians, we get off in the weeds. If we've talked about, Lord, you know, and we do this place where we think, oh, we can do it, or we're self-sufficient, or we're cool, or we've accomplished something, or we've come to a, a plateau, and we forget where, again, where our life comes from. Lord, from beginning to end, from the, the first day when you give us a mirror, your own spiritual mirror, and we either look at ourselves or look at you or both. From that first day when we start to realize we need to know you until this present moment, it's all of grace. Lord Jesus, it's you revealing the Father to us. And Heavenly Father, it's you making your Son known. Lord, we just praise your great name. Thank you that Christianity is just not turning over a new leaf. It's not coming up with some new philosophy. It's knowing you, the true and the living God. That's where it begins. Lord, just pray you would deepen that desire in us. If we don't have a desire, give it to us. If we think we're okay, show us we're not. Lay hold of our souls individually as a body here or do this all over the world. Do it in C-A-R. Do it in Lebanon. Lord, reveal yourself to us more and more and we know that that might take some demolition on your part to deal with some things in our lives and it's going to hurt and we're, not, we're going to get confused and we're not going to know why it's happening. But Lord, we trust you that you enlarge our hearts so you can fill it more with yourself. And it's usually only hardship and trial that enlarges the heart. Lord, make yourself known. We want to know you, the true, the living God. We want to know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Because that's life eternal. And pray you bless everyone here, every unbeliever you would bless. Lord, make yourself known to them. Every believer you would bless, make yourself known to them more and more. This is where it begins and this is where it ultimately ends. A new heavens, a new earth, being before your throne and seeing your face. Lord, give us clarity on discipleship. Give us humility before your word. Enable us to embrace it with joy and confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.